Hello, my name is Sandy Adamitis, the social media director for the Page International Screenwriting Awards, and your host for the Writer's Hangout, a podcast that celebrates the many stages of writing, from inspiration to the first draft, revising, getting a project made, and everything in between. We'll talk to the best and the brightest in the entertainment industry and create a space where you can hang out, learn from the pros, and have fun. Felt it. <laughs> we can go now. <laughs> okay. Are we ready? Yeah. Okay. Hello, I'm Sandy Adamitis. And I'm Terry Sampson. Today, we're going to tell you the fascinating and tragic story of Doug Kenny. First of all, I usually come up with the ideas, but you came up with Doug Kenny. You wanted to talk to uh, talk about him. I love the Doug Kenny. Uh, I love that era of sophomoric humor. I kind of was uh, uh, in the impressionable stage when that when that started happening. So I was a big fan. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to like Doug Kenny. And I really, really liked this man and felt sad <laughs> through the through the whole discovery process yeah. at times. But uh, he was a genius, that's yeah. for sure. He, besides being a genius, he was a co-founder of National Lampoon right. Magazine and co-writer of Animal House and Caddyshack. Yeah. Two films which remain for many people uh, some of the funniest comedy films of all time. Very true. Ah. Um, uh, let me just tell you my sources before we get started okay. for this is uh, The Hollywood Reporter, uh, Wikipedia, as always, uh, Wiki, the best, an article by Michael Kaplan of the New York Post, Geeks of Doom website, and a movie, which you can see on Netflix right now, A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which was based on the book of the same name by Josh Karp. Kenny was born December 10th, 1946. He was a Christmas, well, kind of an early Christmas baby, 1946. And he grew up in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And he was the middle child of a middle-class family. His parents were originally from Massachusetts and were of Irish origin. Doug was named after Douglas MacArthur. I think that's interesting. I'm not quite sure why, yeah, but I, I think it's a it contrasts a lot about his other his life. It was a funny name to give somebody who's going to be so uh, irreverent. Oh yeah, I didn't think of that. You're absolutely yeah. right. <laughs> Um, he had an older brother named Daniel, who is about seven years older than him. And Daniel was one of those golden boys. His parents just absolutely adored him. And he was uh, a hero to Kenny. And unfortunately, when Kenny was in high school, Daniel died of a kidney disease. And besides such a tragic thing happening to you at such a tender age, Doug told friends, and he always felt that his parents would have preferred that he had died. I can't think of anything worse. That is a terrible To have uh, on your shoulders. Burden, yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think they made a movie out of it called <laughs> Ordinary People. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In high school, Doug was artistic, and he was a member of the tennis team. His dad was a tennis coach. His dad... He wasn't just a tennis coach. He was a tennis coach to wealthy elite 
And really? so it's kind of where he started to gain some of his passion to make fun of authoritarians. <laughs> he wrote for the school paper, uh, the mimeographed humor magazine known as the Hall Crier. Uh, what is a mimeographed this is humor a, magazine? <laughs> this is a uh, early way to make a copy, right? And uh, the neat thing is that you'd hand it out and it was wet. Uh, the tests I had were always moist uh, in, in high school. And it smelled and made you high. So I don't see the downside of these okay. things. Maybe the moisture. Yes. Um, after high school, Doug got into Harvard. I think this is kind of the period of time where Doug really came into his own, especially when he started to write for Harvard Lampoon, the university humor magazine. It's also the period of time when Doug met the most important partnership in his life. And you might think it's a woman or whoever he might have Found attractive. Yes. But <laughs> his partner was um, Henry Beard. Uh, Henry was one of the elites. He was the great grandson of the 14th vice president. Do you know who that is? Yes. Who? Uh, oh, I was hoping you knew. Oh, <laughs> John was, C. I, I was... <laughs> Breckenridge. Would you know? I never would have come up with that name. Who, as I mentioned, was born to a really well-to-do family, and he grew up at the Westbury Hotel in Manhattan. John's relationship with his parents was kind of cool, and he used to quip all the time, "I never saw my mother up close." Mm. Also at Harvard, Doug met his future wife, Alexandra Garcia Mata. After Harvard, Doug and Henry, you know, I think this is a period of time where maybe Henry would have went off and worked at a more established place, but Doug talked him into doing a spinoff of the Harvard Lampoon, and they created their own magazine, and thus the National Lampoon was born. Yes. The magazine reached heights Doug could never have imagined, and during the 1970s, it had a far-reaching effect on American humor, kind of what you were talking about earlier, and comedy. National Lampoon spawned uh, films, radio, live theater, and books. Did you read National Lampoon? I did. Yeah, I would get the the magazine. I think I subscribed to it for a while. Everyone talked about it. And and my big influence when I was going through high school were this type of sophomoric comedy, very easy to get into uh, and understand. And it seemed a little bit uh, anti-establishment. And Mm. it was easy to to love. I remember this is uh, uh, during a time when uh, the United States was in a questionable war. A few names that came out of the uh, National Lampoon family, besides Doug Kenny and John Beard, P.J. O'Rourke, Michael O'Donoghue, who I don't even know him in Michael O'Donoghue, scares me, and Beats, who we just lost, I right. think, last year, right. Al Jean of The Simpsons, shout out to The Simpsons, right. and John Hughes. Oh, and the comedy stars, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Brian Dole Murray, and Harold Ramis. Right. Okay. I think it was around uh, 1972 um, during the 
early days of the magazine, uh, Doug wrote much of the material, and he was the poster boy of National Lampoon. For 18 months, he burned the candle at both ends and worked insane, crazy hours. Doug liked the pace, but it wasn't good for a marriage. He told friends that he really loved his wife, Alexandra, but he didn't want to get married and he didn't know how to be a good husband. This is also kind of the period of time where he began to drink heavily and smoked huge amounts of weed. What? Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, Beard told uh, his partner to slow down, but Doug only went faster. I think this is kind of common. Just as National Lampoon was on the verge of great success that Doug has always wanted, the pressure of running a national magazine began to be too much. He was 24, and <laughs> he just left. He just took off. Doug had begun an affair with um, Mary Martello, who was the secretary at National Lampoon. And I'm just assuming she did a lot more than just being a secretary. But those were the days that... And especially a small kind of uh, upstart magazine like this, everything would be required of everyone. Yes. Yeah. So Doug and Martello began an affair, and when Doug disappeared, she disappeared with him. They went to Martha's Vineyard for a while, and I think they camped out in a tent um, for a while <laughs> on James Taylor's land. And then they headed to Los Angeles. Back at the magazine, things were tough because the guy who wrote a third of everything and rewrote everybody's piece was gone. But, you know, when things like that happen and when you're in a room with such talented people, people stepped up and they filled the gap. And that was that. Uh, Doug went back to Manhattan to work on the September issue of Harvard Lampoon. And uh, once he got back, he ended his marriage. He left again. He went to Martha's Vineyard to write his book, Teenage Commies from Outer Space. <laughs> Doug and Henry had a five-year buyout contract with uh, the Lampoon's publishers, and they took advantage of it. And they ended up dividing around like $7 million between the two of them. Henry left. He got out of the uh, Lampoon business, but Doug stayed, and he stayed on staff till about 1977. This is when he left the magazine for good to co-write the screenplay of National Lampoon's Animal House with Chris Miller and Harold Ramis. I, I love the way they started this. It was a collaboration at brunch <laughs> in a Greenwich Village uh, restaurant where the three writers related their favorite college stories and Ramis furiously wrote notes down on his legal pad. Uh, none of the three had ever written a screenplay before and turned in a treatment that was 114 pages long. <laughs> it succeeded industry standards by, I don't know, say 90 pages? Yeah. yeah. The only takers for this huge treatment was Tom Mount and his assistant, Sean Daniel, at Universal. While the treatment lacked a clear storyline, Tom felt the basic elements were in place. 
This was also the time that Saturday Night Live was uh, exploding. So Mount wanted to capture that spirit. And Mount and Daniel convinced their boss, Ned Tannen, who loved and hated the treatment, (laughs) um, that it had potential. So Tannen said, cool, we'll do the script. We're going to do it cheap but I want you to get a director first. And Tannen recommended Michael Nichols, John Schlesinger, and Jim Frawley, who at the time was uh, doing the Monkeys TV series. <laughs> uh, none of them said yes to Animal House, which I, it was probably best. Can you imagine a Nichols uh, Mike Nichols. Yeah, can you imagine him directing that? <laughs> yeah, I can't. I, mean, I love, it's colliding in my brain on the differences between... How we would handle this. The Graduate and uh, <laughs> Animal House. Yeah, so we've gotten serious in certain parts, which have really been weird. Um, Daniel's girlfriend, as it, as it happens sometime, Daniel's girlfriend, Catherine Wooten, was working as a script supervisor on this little independent film at the time called Kentucky Fried Movie. And it was being directed by this 27-year-old high school dropout named John Landis. She recommended John to Daniels, and Universal had found its director. Landis liked the treatment, but some of the changes that he wanted to make and got made, he thought that the first version of Animal House was mean. And he wanted it to be a little more even just us against them, the fraternities. I guess it was a little more complicated with the authority figures, and he thought it had a lot of hate in it. And he also got rid of the uh, projectile vomiting (laughs) Oh. Yes. <laughs> now the mean is he? Are you talking about just the general relationship between the uh, the the sides? The I think things got a little uglier, maybe in the treatment oh. towards the dean and things like that. Animal House premiered at the Manhattan Astor Theater on July twenty eighth, nineteen seventy eight. Okay, these numbers are crazy. By October in nineteen seventy eight, Animal House made sixty million. Crazy. I think they made it for under $2 million. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I'll have to look that up. But it made $60 million at the box office. By Christmas, it had grossed $100 million and making it the most successful film comedy in Hollywood history. It even surpassed Blazing Saddles. Imagine the executives at the company when this little side movie mm-hmm. would, would uh, do this. This is yeah. where they go to a meeting and that's all they talk about is Animal House. Okay, let's do an improv right now. Okay. I'll be the big executive <laughs> okay. and you'll say, what do you think? Well, uh, I don't know if you've looked at the uh, returns on this movie, but you might want to take a look at it. Take a look. Actually, I brought that project into the studio. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, I I knew it was going to be a huge success. You see, somebody over here said that, but they were mistaken. No, no it was okay. me. It was yeah. me. Mr. A, Producer. There's a lot of loose talk when things go well, <laughs> yes. so I understand. Yeah. After the success of Animal House, Doug moved to Hollywood, and every studio pursued the 31-year-old. He decided to go with Fox And he started a production uh, company with Harold Ramis, Alan Greisman, and Michael Schamberg. 
two young producers he met through his agent, John Patakt, and they called the production company uh, Three Wheel Productions. It was during this time cocaine took center stage for Doug. It is alleged that he had sugar bowls full of it and indulged in it freely. Doug and his girlfriend at the time, actress Catherine Walker, rented a house on Betty Lane in Coldwater Canyon. Catherine was away a lot, and the house became a bachelor pad for Doug's comedy friends, or whoever he befriended that week. Doug and Brian Dole Murray wrote the screenplay for Caddyshack. And Harold Ramis was going to be the director. It would be the first time he ever directed. And it went into production. Although he didn't know completely what he was doing, uh, Ramis was very, very calm on set and open to ideas. Ramis said, I just learned as I went along. Doug was horrified by the end product of Caddyshack. Uh, He felt that he and Murray had written a hilarious script about class warfare, and at the last minute, it turned into a movie about a gopher puppet. Um, Doug walked away from the whole experience just feeling disillusioned with the whole process. That's just, you know, you're you're just doing what you want, and it just wasn't enough. The puppet thing was odd. I mean, in a way, you kind of accept it because the movie's the movie. Right. But that did seem a, a variation that uh, these guys would never do. Uh, I, I imagine there was a reason I'm not sure of. I'm sure it was a universal behind the scenes. Yeah. We got a puppet, uh, put it in the movie. We'll give you um, $100,000, $300,000 towards the budget, something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not sure, but I remember seeing that puppet. I didn't like the puppet at first, <laughs> um, but I think at the end when it does a little dance or something, does it do a little dance at the end of the movie? I believe it does before it's blown up, yeah. Yeah, I kind of liked the puppet. I guess Bill Murray made you like the puppet or got, became engaged with the puppet of what was happening. If it was, If Bill Murray wasn't there... I wouldn't have liked it. Well, here's my take on it, now that you've brought this up. So you needed the puppet for Bill to be funny. True. Bill had to, say, had to have something to, to chase. But if you, I'm telling you, from a distance, if you just had a little head coming out, that probably would have been enough. I agree. Because Bill... 100% I Bill agree. Bill carries the moment. But Bill did need a foe. Mm-hmm. But an adorable doll foe, mm-hmm. eh, maybe mm, not. Yeah. <laughs> but in the end... It yeah, matter. it all, all came together in the end. That's right. Um, the day after Caddyshack premiered, uh, Warner Brothers arranged a press conference and Doug showed up. He was really high. He caused a commotion. <laughs> his parents were there and his parents had to take him out of the room. Um, this, I mean, Chevy Chase decided that it was time for both of them to clean up. And so he arranged for them. He took Doug to Hawaii, basically, so both of them could kind of just kick cocaine. Hawaii. Hawaii. Uh, They checked into the Maui Hyatt Regency, and they spent about a month relaxing and playing tennis. The no cocaine rule? Didn't set in. No, it didn't. It didn't. Didn't, didn't last. And soon tennis cans arrived with cocaine inside <laughs> the tennis balls. After a month, 
Chevy left and Catherine arrived, and Catherine said that she and Doug snorkeled, they walked on the beach, they held hands, they had conversations about their future and how they were going to decorate the house, and she thought they had a good time there. And then Catherine went back to California, and Doug was going to stay and check out some locations for future projects. Doug left Maui on August 26th. And, oh, have you ever been to Maui? It's gorgeous. I have been a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Um, he left Maui and he went to Kauai. Um, yeah, another excellent choice, yeah. by the way. Yeah. And he checked into the Coco Palms Hotel. And reports show that he occupied the room the night that he got there. Um, but he did not return the following evening. Mm. Um, police discovered Doug's rental car parked at the... Police discovered Doug's rental car parked at the Hanapipe lookout. A police and fire rescue team was dispatched to the site where they discovered Doug's body wedged between some boulders at the base, which is about just 30 feet below a mm-hmm. cliff. That's not a, that's not very far. I mean, you're in Hawaii. Right. Well, anyways, um, to get to the cliff, Doug walked past a sign that warned of danger ahead and a share drop. Either not noticing it or deciding to take the risk, Doug walked past it. And he walked through a small field loaded with brambles and towards the lookout. Doug was wearing a T-shirt and cut-off jeans. A pair of slippers and his eyeglasses were discovered at the top of the cliff. Oh, huh. Huh. Officials looking into the death reasoned that Doug had removed his slippers to get better footing on the loose ground. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. Um, except for the fact that he fell off the cliff, nothing else was clear, Yeah, the police captain said. Hmm. Whether he was walking or looking over the rim is not clear. The police fixed Doug's date of death as August 19th, 1980, and ruled it as accidental and closed the case six days later. Does that suggest that... Um uh, he it wasn't discovered for, uh, they're, they're guessing on the day? Um, two days, and they're not quite sure. Okay. Because he could have fallen, he could have suffered, he could but, have sat on the cliff for but a day. As, but, uh, okay. Yeah. But as, as much as uh, 48 hours was uh, uh, the time that... Yeah, they kind of just okay. took, uh, configured it. Catherine, Chevy Chase, and Doug's lawyer, Joe Shapiro, went to Kauai to retrieve Doug's body, and they brought Lay's at the gift shop, and they took it to the site. As they tossed the flowers over the cliff, a rainbow appeared. Wow. Doug was 33. Hmm. There are three theories about what happened to Doug, Kenny, and let's go over them here. And I'd love your opinion on this, Okay. Theory. Harold and Maud. Doug died by suicide. Depression, guilt over so many things in his life, the way he left his first wife, the guilt of uh, his feeling his parents loved his brother more, uh, leaving the magazine the way he did, um, all added up. I would add the feeling of I'm never going to uh, not be a drug addict would add hmm. uh, the same motivation. And also, if I can uh, speak as a 
creative type person. I haven't gotten gotten the certificate yet that makes me that, but it's kind of, it's in the mail. I understand. And it's that at some point in your life, you think I can't do this now. I used to be able to do it. Now, when I write something, it sucks, mm-hmm. which is just part of the uh, writing cycle, you know, right. where you, and so he's thinking that he's also thinking maybe that he's got a cocaine problem. That he's not going to uh, get rid of. What are the other? Oh, um, falling down. Uh-huh. It was an accident. He didn't want to die, but he put himself into a situation where it could happen. He had plans. He had a future. But the moment was there. And he took it. Yeah. See, to me, on this story, in a bad situation, everybody else is wrong and I'm right, which is good for a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, then slipping seems to be the the way. I didn't. The state of mind is in in question here, right? And then this one uh, is kind of bizarre. Less than zero. There were rumors circulating um, that expat drug runners and locals often killed wealthy tourists who were looking for drugs and then dumped their bodies in that canyon. Oh. That. That makes sense to me. Yeah. It really does. Uh, he got to the hotel, spent the night. And he was new to Kauai. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Here he's in a new uh, area. In Maui, um, they have that uh, uh, the road to Hana. Right. That's all turns. And I remember driving it. And there were just locals on the side of the road. And they would, uh, you know, act like they were smoking a joint. And so... And, so you would know that you could buy pot from them. Oh. <laughs> and it happened all the way up the hill. Was it professionally pantomimed or were they? Yeah, no, it was pantomime. It wasn't, they didn't actually have a joint. Wow. They would pantomime, which, uh, thank you, that was a better way of saying it, uh, <laughs> less confusing. Um, and that was for you to, you know, at first I was like, what the heck are they doing? But by the fifth guy, you knew that that was, you know, just like, you know, come on. Well, you know, I didn't think I was going to like Doug. Kenny, because I loved Animal House, but the whole National Lampoon, um, I thought it was elitism and uh, Harvard and just really rich people making fun of women, um, misogynists. And the more research I did, I discovered that they just hated authority across the board (laughs) and they would make fun of everyone. So I think at that period of time, making fun of everyone gave you kind of a pass. Yes. I don't think that would work today. So that's the story of Doug Kenny. And um, go watch Animal House. Go watch Caddyshack. Exactly. Um, Good movies. Yeah. That's a wrap for the Writer's Hangout. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, like, and thrive. Till we get to hang out again, keep writing. The world needs your stories. The Writer's Hangout is sponsored by the Page International Screenwriting Awards. Executive producer, Kristen O'Vern. Producers, Terry Sampson and Sandy Adamitis. Music by Ethan Stoller.